0: Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues.
1: Well, thank you for joining us this afternoon. I think you're obviously here because you realize that Ebola is. A- Big issue, and there's an epidemic now that's been going for some time in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's the second largest Ebola epidemic in history. There was, of course, a bigger one in East Africa five years ago that only eventually died out in 2016. This one is potentially more serious because it's located in an area of persistent conflict, conflict that's affected the attempt to control the disease. And it's located near a major border with Uganda, where there's a real risk of the disease spreading and becoming an international epidemic. Ebola is a scary disease if you've read about it. Uh, Once you have it, your chances of survival are in the neighborhood of 50%. I guess that's the official WHO figure. But when you look at the numbers for people being treated in this epidemic, it's actually up above 60%. I guess one of the fortunate things is it's somewhat limited in its transmission because it has to come from the bodily fluids of someone who's already got the disease. But it means extreme measures of quarantine. The treatment centers are scary in themselves just to be in, in my impression. We have people who have actually been there, so we'll hear from them in a moment. And uh, for reasons that I guess we'll explore this afternoon, the treatment centers have encountered some surprising violent attacks, and a good deal of community resistance. So the techniques that were used in West Africa to contain it, to keep it from spreading, don't seem to be working as well in, in DRC, and that's a matter of real great concern. We're fortunate in having some very distinguished, knowledgeable people here to share their thoughts with us, and our leading speaker is going to be Admiral Tim Zemer, who... Attempted to retire from the Navy after a 30-year career doing almost everything, including flying off aircraft carriers, doing various operational commands, very senior commands of senior job on the Joint Staff. But as they say in the Pentagon, he's failed retirement miserably. <laughs> First going to work for, a, I think, actually running an organization called World Relief that focused on disaster assistance and other assistance to developing countries. And then... The Bush administration, having done a great deal for HIV/AIDS, decided that we needed to tackle malaria and saw an Admiral Zimmer somebody who knew how to run things. And so Tim became the head of the president's malaria initiative, in which he did a spectacular job. He was appointed by this administration to be the senior director for global health security and biodefense at the National Security Council staff, held that position up until July 2018. When he became the senior deputy assistant administrator, lots of I've had titles like that in the past. (laughs) The title is longer than than your resume of the Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance at AID. Some of us, this discussion is on the record, but I will say in my own name that I think he should be made in charge of all U.S. government efforts in, in combating Ebola. I know you want more work to do, but it seems to me there might be less work if you were actually put in charge. So, please join me in welcoming Admiral Zemer.
2: Thanks, Paul, and AEI for uh, hosting this afternoon event. Uh, this is my sixth Ebola meeting today, and uh, I just want to thank AEI for being engaged. Interested, but more importantly as you understand and get involved from your different organizations and offices that you'll continue to look at this as a significant global issue uh, I've been asked to give you a couple high-level points that will help facilitate the uh, panel discussion which in these types of forums really is where the bread and butter uh, value of coming together is but uh, I want to just make a couple high-level observations and comments on how the United States government is prioritizing this infectious disease outbreak and how we're working with the government of DRC and WHO to do everything we can to get our arms around this and contain this outbreak. So why, why is this an issue? Uh, strategically and from a policy perspective, why do we really care? And I think it's really important to highlight that if you had a chance to read the national security strategy in Pillar 1, it clearly articulates that it is in our national interest to prevent, respond, and contain infectious diseases at their source. Building, Building on the national security strategy is the national biodefense strategy, and it clearly reiterates the national imperative to deal with that, to fund, identify and then respond appropriately. And then to piggyback on all of that is the global health security agenda, which was launched by the Obama administration on the heels of the 2014 Ebola outbreak and then continued under the Trump administration. So when you package the policy direction and the strategic imperative of what infectious diseases are and how they relate to our national interests, it's clear that this bubbles right up to the top as a national security interest. We know, all of us in this room, the adverse impact of infectious diseases, flu, Zika, other outbreaks that have manifested themselves in different ways. A lot of reference is made to the 2014 West Africa outbreak. When we look at this outbreak, that was a very challenging moment for the global health community. Many, many, many lessons learned came out of that. With the current outbreak in DRC, it came on the heels of the ninth outbreak in DRC. The previous nine were addressed and contained in a matter of months in a fairly routine way. Everybody was kind of patting themselves on the back. We knew what to do, how to do it, and how to get these things under control. Uh, but unlike West Africa, our efforts here in the second largest outbreak, we have not only been unsuccessful, the situation is bad and it's going to get worse. And the, and the yellow lights are blinking all over the place. So now in the 10th month, when it first went, the original strategic funding plan was for four to five months. So now 10 months into this, uh, we're passing through 2,300 cases, and 1,522 deaths, and that number continues to accelerate. So we're at a very, very critical phase. Hence, it's really important for folks like you to spend a few minutes in your afternoon to understand and then determine your role and where you fit in and how we might respond. In addition to the increased outbreak in the two primary provinces in northeast Congo, we, in the last two weeks, had an outbreak that crossed the border into Uganda. There were six cases, several deaths. And the good news is the government of Uganda's preparation teams and response seem to have identified work. And at this point, there's no reported additional transmission from those six cases that migrated from Beni into Uganda. That's a good news, about the only good news part of the story is that when it leaped the border, it was identified and contained. I was in uh, DRC three weeks ago, that's already dated. Uh, Ramsey Day was there last week with with Ambassador Green, the administrator of USAID, so I'm going to defer the freshest country report to Ramsey. When I went three weeks ago, it was one of the most sobering visits I've ever made on foreign travel. I had been to DRC with the malaria program, I know the country fairly well, But it was sobering in that it was clear what the objective was, but there was no clear strategy on how to get our arms around this and to contain it. It became clear not only to me but to those that I was with that it wasn't just a public health crisis, and I think that's the thing that we need to understand. Uh, It is a very, very complex public health emergency and should be linked directly to a failure in development, governance, and political support in one of the most insecure, dangerous two provinces in the world. This outbreak has been fueled by infighting and external fighting, organized gangs, armed groups. It has uh, facilitated deep, deep community distrust and suspicion. Three vectors have come together to form a perfect storm. The virus. We know the virus. We can contain that sucker, but it's going in the wrong way. The community. Community distrust, lack of compliance. This is, in theory, a response to benefit the community and their health. The community support and resistance has continued to point that vector in the wrong direction. And then the security and the insecurity in the area continues to be perceived uninvaded. So you have three vectors that we need to address that are a result of political and development failure all going in the wrong direction. The question before all of us really is, how do we then respond? What can we do and what should we do? I would like to say that while all of these tasks are very, very complex, they're not insurmountable. And I think it's incumbent on all of us who are engaging to roll up our sleeves and dedicate ourselves to getting this thing under control. There's been a lot of discussion on how we got, where we got, and the issues. We want to move beyond describing the situation and get into the phase of, okay, now what do we do about it? There are some significant shifts underway right now we have been teaming up with our international partners, the World Bank, the UK government, and the EU. And they're the principal other investors in addition to the United States. And there was an acknowledgement that we need a total reset in three major areas, leadership and coordination of this response. WHO went in there with a four-month horizon, 10 months into it. They're still there. They have a team of wonderful, committed, passionate people that are operating under significant risks, and they're looking at an extended horizon of 10 to 12 months. If you're in the HR business, in recruiting and retaining health experts that are operating in one of the most challenging places in the world, the notion of WHO's capacity to continue to lead and respond effectively, that margin continues to go down. So there was clearly a need to reset leadership and coordination and take it out of the hands of WHO. There needed to be a comprehensive strategy that didn't just address the health response but all the other supporting components. Community engagement, the engagement of the NGOs, a more robust, clearly defined prevention strategies for the four countries east of North Kivu, Goma, and Etoro Province. clarity on financing. If we push this out 10 to 12 months, the burn rate right now is about a million bucks a day. Accelerate that through the end of the year. How many dollars is that? I won't project, but probably between 350 and 400 million. So if you're going to get donors to step up to the plate and invest significant cash, you've got to have transparency and accountability, know where the cash is, know where the gaps are, so that we can clearly step up and say, we're all in this together. We don't have that today. So we made three recommendations. Need a complete rehaul, overhaul of leadership and coordination. We need to uh, have a plan that identifies the requirements. And thirdly, we need a mechanism that can account for funds. The good news is we didn't just talk about it. There has been a significant shift at the UN, OCHA, and WHO senior levels to say, okay, we got it. We're supporting it. And uh, we, the U.S. government, welcomes the appointment of David Gressley, an American citizen who's been in the humanitarian business for years with the U.N. He's a humanitarian expert. He's been in Somali, Sudan. He understands the complexity of those complex areas. And he has been asked and accepted to be the U.N. Ebola coordinator. We're very, very grateful for that. I personally met with him. Some of you in here may have met with him. We ought to be celebrating the fact that we have a gentleman of his knowledge and expertise to work with the government of DRC and the UN and WHO and all the partners to move forward on a more integrated, coordinated plan. We welcome the fact that we have jump-started a new strategic plan. We hope to see that produced by the end of this month, in July. Uh, That will be a coordinated plan that brings in the health, as well as the supporting components that I referenced. Security, community engagement, regional preparedness, financial accountability and transparency, and then long-term development. At the end of the day, as we peel the mandate off this Ebola problem, we see that this is an area where it has been neglected, the development commitment in this area was not there. And so we have an opportunity post-Ebola then to continue to engage, to increase our development commitment and build systems and capacity in that area. Concerns moving forward, just having an organizational shift with a couple key people like Mr. Gressley isn't sufficient. We're going to have to get him a team that's funded, that's manned with the right people. And give him the capacity needed. We have a government that's still in transition. For those of you who've been following the government of DRC, you understand how fragile that is. We have a man who's committed with President Tshisekedi. The Minister of Health is a lame duck. Uh, the new cabinet probably will not be identified until September. So between now and September, we are working with Minister Lungi, who has had the Ebola response as his priority. but. That whole government transition, while they're in the lead, represents an opportunity for us all to engage to help the president and the government of DRC move the agenda forward. There's been a less than optimum engagement of the NGOs. One of the things that we're pushing for is that we capitalize on the planning, the metrics, as well as the implementation of all of these significantly trained and NGOs that are in the area with capacity to continue to engage in the health response. So while there is a lot of challenges, there is a current plan forward. The United States government, underneath the leadership of Ambassador Hammer in DRC, has embraced a notion to totally reset how the United States government is going to engage as a whole of government response in leadership helping the security piece, the community piece, and the preparedness. That will be totally complementary with the SRP that's under development. So I think hopefully that kind of set the stage of why we're there, the critical nature of this outbreak. But more importantly, there is a recognition of an adjustment, a reset, and a commitment that we got to do business differently. And the United States has made this a priority. We're all in and we're going to continue to have to work pretty hard collectively with our international partners as well as our NGO partners and everyone else to pull this apart. Recognition goes to uh, a number of folks. The, The White House is totally aware and involved. Secretary Pompeo has made this a priority. Secretary Azar has made this a priority. If you work with CDC, Dr. uh, uh, Redfield has made this a priority, and our Administrator Green, who just came back with Ramsey, has made this a priority. He's on the Hill right now. We are grateful that the Hill sees this as a priority and is looking at ways to help it. I'm
1: going to ask the panel to come up to the stage now. So we have some very distinguished panelists here to take this discussion a bit further, starting on my far right, not politically, but... Ramsey Day, who's the senior deputy assistant administrator for the Africa Bureau at USAID. He came to AID from four years at the International Republican Institute, and before that, spent quite a bit of time with AID in Montenegro, I believe, and also in Washington. And next to him is Thomas Chilar. Thomas is a PhD biochemist who works at Gilead Sciences, one of the pioneers in developing antiretrovirals for treating HIV AIDS. Thomas, as I understand the story, checked the, I guess you call it the library of molecules that Gilead had when the first outbreak of Ebola occurred and found there was one that looked promising. It's one of the four drugs that's now being tested in DRC, and I think it's useful to have a scientific perspective on this. I should mention, Thomas is not here in his Gilead capacity, and I, by the way, have done some consulting and advising for Gilead also, which is not the purpose of our meeting today. In fact, our real concern today is in trying to contain this disease, not in finding cures once the containment has failed. And then, uh, very importantly, Ken Isaacs, who's had a remarkable career in the, I guess you'd call it the non-governmental sector. He's Vice President of Samaritan's Purse, which has done some pioneering work in Congo itself, and has quite a few people on the front lines of this fight, and has Ken has been out there previously. I'm going to start with Ramsey because Ramsey Day has just come back from visiting DRC with Administrator Green and it might be good to have your first impressions from the front line. Sure.
3: Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. I will preface all of my comments by saying that I don't have a technical background in health, so if I sound like a layman, it's because I am. Yeah. But we had the opportunity to, to travel to Eastern DRC with Administrator Green last week. We visited GOMA and then went up to Batembo and visited a, a Ebola treatment unit in Katwa. And I had a, a, just a few takeaways that I thought may may help inform this discussion. And I think much of this, much of my comments, are, I think are going to reinforce the Admiral's perspectives that he shared with us. But number one, and I think most importantly, the health workers that I met with and, and interacted with are doing a Herculean effort in this. They are facing death every day and under very, very difficult conditions. And so I, I think what we're seeing with the health, health workers there is is just absolutely heroic. It was very clear to me that we know medically and technically exactly what to do. We've, we've overcome this nine times in D, in the DRC. We overcome, overcame a, a huge outbreak in, in, in West Africa, obviously, but this is, so this is clearly much more than a, a public health emergency, as the Admiral mentioned. This is absolutely a failure of governance and a failure of politics, and it's a developmental emergency. So this was something that was absolutely clear to us. The, the protocols are being followed. They have been institutionalized and systematized. Facilities were very clean. I felt like some of the innovations that had been uh, incorporated into the ETUs quite innovative in that family members can now interact via a clear plastic, hard plastic, uh, what they call cube, so they can see the treatment that their family members are undergoing and they can interact with them. So I think many of those kind of innovations are making a, a significant effort. Secondly, another takeaway that we had was that it's it's very clear that Um, We need a holistic approach to this, and that it's not quite there yet. Again, as the the Admiral mentioned, I think we're leaving a lot on the table in terms of the resources that are at our disposal. Many of the international and local NGOs that are operating in the area have been operating there for 20 to 25 years. And the response that has been at least up to date, I think, has left some of that on the table, simply because the community distrust and the engagement I think has not been as robust as it possibly could. So I, I think it's a question that probably need that really needs to be answered is how can we integrate the local expertise and the international expertise better into into this system. And I, I think lastly, I think there are some risks that will be absolutely critical to avoid. Um, one is creating an Ebola economy, in that if we create a system that is responsive to uh, the Ebola response that is sucking up a tremendous amount of oxygen. Once this response and outbreak is overcome, and that system leaves the area, what is it left with? So I think we have to be very careful not to deteriorate or unravel the existing health system. As weak as it may be, there are, again, longstanding systems and international NGOs that have been developing and strengthening health centers all, all around the area that have been working on measles outbreaks and cholera outbreaks, and a lot of this oxygen is being sucked up by the Ebola outbreak and the response. So I think it's absolutely critical that we ensure that there isn't a deterioration of those health centers and that health system, again, as weak as it may be, so when this, when the international response is completed, that we, we haven't left them in a more difficult place than, than they're currently in.
1: Ken, let me turn to you. I should have noted in introducing you that you would have major experience in disaster relief in the tsunami in Indonesia and also in the earthquake in Pakistan shortly after that. I'm wondering, from that perspective, how do you react to Ramsey's raising the issue of what happens after all the international apparatus goes away?
0: There's definitely an Ebola economy. Now. We see that, everything from the renting of real estate, labor rate. People are, are, that work for the MOH are not receiving their salaries. Guards are foisted as an NGO uh, onto us. We do not want any guards. So there are a lot of economic impacts. I'm, I'm pleased to hear that, let's say, a czar has been appointed. I, I do see it as a structural problem, and we don't see an easy way out of it. We put all of our common thinking together. We can't see a way that it's going to end. And I think that there is a, a high likelihood of having a sense of a false security about vaccinations when you can't access people to vaccinate them. This gentleman right here will know more about vaccines than I do, but I'm going to guess that you probably need to get 80 or 85 percent for herd immunity, and and that's not going to happen. So there are development considerations. It's a very, very complex circumstance. And as Admiral Zemer said, we see it getting worse before it gets better.
1: What obstacles do you see in NGOs working on this
0: Everything from social engagement. There is uh, historically in Congo, in the eastern part, there's been fighting going on for the last 20 years. There's a divide between the east and west. There's considerations of ethnicity, of politics, of infrastructure, of economies. There are probably close to 100 armed groups moving around in the east. People are afraid, the health workers. As Ramsey just said, they're taking their lives into their own hands. But the citizens themselves, are they have a feeling of there's been a war going on here, and we die by the thousands every month, and you're telling us to be wary of Ebola, and it's only killed 1,500 people. That's like, almost like telling us to be afraid of lightning. So their thinking is not irrational, but there is an issue of proportionality. And being involved in Liberia in 2014 and um, knowing what happened there, uh, but we haven't seen that. And, and that comes back to this issue of the vaccine, some of the therapeutics. It, they do give a good outcome, but the number of, of people getting sick continues to grow. But to me, more worrisome is the geographical scope of it continues to spread. So it seems inevitable that at some point there will be a contamination in a populated area where people have not been vaccinated, where the vaccine can't be mobilized quick enough. And so these are some of the operational problems that we're seeing.
1: Thomas,
4: First of all, Paul, and and thank you very much for having me here. And I'm just coming from a little bit different angle. And you may wonder, you know, the pharma industry, what we have to contribute. And, you know, our story is very simple and very straightforward. Because in 2014, uh, in the midst of the West African outbreak, there really was the desperate situation, right? There were no drugs available that could be given to patients in the treatment centers. There were no vaccines uh, until very end that could protect the the uninfected population. But we sort of realized when when it was really bad in in the end of two thousand and fourteen in West Africa, should we do could we do something with our infrastructure with our expertise in the discovery and development of antiviral drugs so i've been primarily working for years in hiv and hepatitis drug discovery and development but it was very easy to take our infrastructure and repurpose it and and uh, start a public private partnership we worked very closely with cdc with department of defense and uh, and many other uh, drug companies did as well without you know much of the public advertisement, but within the years between the West African outbreak and now, I can say we're in a completely different position in terms of what kind of armamentarium we have in hands, both on the side of the vaccines. I I can say that, and everybody would agree with me, if we didn't have the vaccine and 140,000 people being vaccinated, this outbreak would be blown out of proportion just because of the political situation that is there. Um, so that was sort of at the forefront, but you also need to ask the question: What you can do about the patients who actually get sick, right? Who get a disease that is terrible? Um, it is seventy percent mortality rate in the in the DRC outbreak. It's higher than it was in the West Africa, and uh, that's where I think most of the drug developers can step in. And so, as a result. Uh, For us, what it means to do, it's important to do some organized, well-defined, objective clinical research, which is very difficult to do under these circumstances. But nevertheless, it actually succeeded in November of last year under the guidance of the WHO and NIH and randomized clinical trials started in East Congo in multiple different treatment centers that basically ask the question of the four most advanced investigational drug products for Ebola, how they compare head-to-head with next to each other. Um, The trial is ambitious, is large. It's going to uh, enroll about 500 patients. But because of the number of cases, it's actually progressing very quickly. So uh, the assumption is sometimes before the end of this year we would have some results on what investigational drug products would be best. And you just don't do this to provide a treatment to the sick patients. I think this has a huge impact on the whole community because if people who bring the health care and help, they can actually show that when you get to the treatment center, you can get treated productively, you can survive, and you come out as a live person. Um, The mortality rate is not 70%. I think it has a huge positive impact on the whole community because they realized that the treatment centers are not the places to come to die. I think the trust would be stronger. And it's very important to identify the cases of the patients at the early stage of the disease, mm-hmm. because at some point there is basically no point of return. The disease is so aggressive that ultimately it leads to the organ failure and collapse of the systemic circulation. And at that stage... None of the treatments, none of the drugs can help. So this is really the conundrum where when the community doesn't trust the healthcare providers, they don't come forward, the patients don't come to the treatment center at the early stage of the disease, and it substantially diminishes the chance for them to survive and to be productively treated. So I think that's where I really see the role of the clinical research and, and the development of new productive drugs. Thanks, Thomas. Can you add some insights to talking to me earlier
1: about why there's community <coughs> resistance? I wondered if you might elaborate on that here.
0: We have a, an Ebola treatment center in a place called Komanda, And um, I was there two months ago. When I got out of the car, there was a woman screaming, and her 4-year-old child had just died. And uh, later we would find out that the child tested negative, but the Red Cross burial team was there. It was about 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they were just looking at their watch. Mother's here crying. Dad's here crying, screaming, wailing. Child's here in a body bag. And they're saying, well, you know, what? it's pretty late today. I don't think we can bury the child today. And so mother has a huge reaction. And then they changed their mind after about five minutes of discussion and said they would bury the child. And then they again flip flop back and said they wouldn't bury the child. So mom and dad grabs the body runs out of the compound and went into the community and buried the child themselves, and they sent the stretcher back to us three days later. There's a lack of social engagement and the sharing of information. Um, There's huge distrust. People are wondering, why should I worry about Ebola? How, as the professor just said here, they do see ETCs, Ebola treatment centers, as a place to go die too often, and they need to have hope out of that, but they also need to understand the very essential aspects of infection prevention and control. And this information is is not being shared. It's just not... The society, in a way, isn't conducive to the sharing of information, particularly with the insecurity and the distrust that's going on.
1: Tim, this is Washington, so I guess we have to talk money a little bit. And sometimes people say, well, your priority is measured by how much money you're spending. Could you give us a sort of thumbnail on the budgetary situation because i think you already alluded to the fact that this was planned for 4 months and we're already into 10 with more coming
2: to date funding hasn't been an issue for a couple reasons coming out of the 2014 outbreak uh, congress approved the 1 billion or a multi-billion dollar supplemental the management of the balance of that has been done very carefully and so we have had access to the balance of that so there's significant amount of funding that remains in there. However, it's focused and targeted for infectious disease outbreak and so to date we have been able to fund through that. The real question is what's going to be needed in the future. As the U.S. government is committed to date, the bank has been very generous in funding it. The U.S. is the, as always the lead funder as a a uh, bilateral country. It's what is the requirement, what is the total funding requirement, and then how does the U.S. step forward and continue to meet the need. Uh, We have a new benchmark that we want to be the lead. That's okay, but we want to cover our fair share. So there is a nominal target of covering about 25% of an international response. So that's also observed. So we have to balance that policy objective along with the overall uh, funding. So today, funding doesn't constrain us from doing everything that we can see that's in, in the plan. The other restriction has been the uh, trafficking in persons restriction that impacts a number of the development countries, uh, DRC specifically. So some of the funding has been withheld because of that policy congressional mandate and the implementation by the current administration. The good news is there has been some reconsideration of that for the 2018 and accommodation to release some of that. But there are a number of moving parts that impede how we fund these very critical initiatives. So at this point, we're grateful for what we have. We thank the Congress for what they did, and we want to stay tuned so that we keep them up to speed on any additional requirements to respond to this global emergency. I Could hope you or Ram- answers.
1: Could you, Ramsey, explain a little more detail about this trafficking in persons issue?
3: Oh, well, sure. So the Trafficking Victims Protection Act um, is legislation that in, in prohibits the U.S. government from providing assistance to a government that is what we call tier three in the trafficking in persons report that's issued by the State Department every year. The Democratic Republic of Congo is now a tier three country, which means that we are restricted um, in providing any government government to government assistance or any assistance that would benefit the government, so there is the potential to get a presidential waiver, um, and that has not been issued yet. There, of course, we have um, there are carve outs and exemptions for uh, humanitarian assistance, and so the immediate um, international development assistance funds uh, international disaster assistance funds, IDA funds are exempted from this. but the question is as we were talking earlier, we need a holistic approach to this, and there needs to be developmental support within the communities. And those, some of those programs certainly have been have been impacted by this. The White House has been reluctant to issue waivers, country level waivers, but we're in discussions now, and we believe that there could be a different posture. And if I can add, maybe perhaps Please. something that Ken mentioned too, and something that we we observed um, on the community distrust issue, maybe just to kind of hammer this point home, and also to maybe give a little bit of a kind of an anecdotal perspective on this, we heard a lot of stories from from local citizens, local community leaders, about how um, people will go in to get tested for Ebola having severe symptoms, high fever, vomiting, et cetera, um, but 90% of them are testing negative for Ebola, but they're getting turned away. And that, in many ways, is a problem because it perpetuates this notion that you don't, the international community doesn't really care about me because I have other types of issues, other, cholera, too. malaria. Is you, you only care about Ebola, and you're only trying to keep this Ebola from moving across the border into an international realm, but you don't really care about me as a person. And, and, that, and that narrative is a continuing to get perpetuated as people come in with these symptoms but then get turned away for treatment. So that's why I think it's so important to integrate the Ebola testing, the frontline testing into the existing health centers. I know it has to be done safely and it has to be done properly, but I do think that's something that's really important. The other thing that we haven't yet to talk about really is, is the militarization of the response. It's, it's somewhat intimidating to see these big, massive gunships come in and a 25-car 20 car convoy coming into your community, and then you're supposed to embrace this as a way of protecting your health. And I think this is something that we just have to be very, very sensitive to. I will be the first one to say that everyone's health and safety is absolutely paramount, and this is a highly, highly insecure area, but that's part of this riddle, is how do we balance the need to protect those who are working there without alienating the community and intimidating the community?
2: Let me jump in and just piggyback on that. So when I was there on my visit three weeks ago, I asked our WHO colleagues what their primary... Priority was security. When I asked uh, some of the other practitioners that were in that loop, what their priority was, security. Turning to the NGOs or the community leaders, they would—they all said less security. So the real <laughs> challenge is to balance those two worlds: the humanitarian assistance approach to winning the hearts and minds and engaging with the community, with the absolute imperative need to keep the healthcare responders safe when they go out and do the work. It's counterintuitive to be more safe by providing less vehicles. So we have a little work to do to understand the context. And I think it's also important to understand that it isn't the same all over the two provinces. Each community, each village, each city center has a different security dynamic. If you're up in Beni, it's the ADF. If you're down in Butembo, it's my mind. And so the engagement with the security and the implications of that are different 50, 60 kilometers separation. The suburb of Katwa to Butembo has a different community dynamic. So it's almost as though you're engaging differently in every outbreak area. And this notion that anybody from Washington or Geneva or London can come in with a graduate level solution is a joke. What we have to do is completely flip that paradigm, start at the top, this mother with her kid, and say, okay, she is the community. Now how is it, what are the possible areas to engage for communication and understanding so that we hopefully can achieve some sort of collegial receptivity to engage in this public health response? So I think the experts know the community engagement is the key. How we do that in the massive crisis area is really the challenge because we want to get in, get it done, and get out, and it's going to be a long, long
3: haul.
0: So just to reinforce what Ramsey said, at our <coughs> Ebola treatment center, we've probably had—I don't know the exact numbers—but around 200 patients, and about 30 have died, and we've only had five that have tested positive for Ebola, and only one of those died. So uh, using the therapeutics, we we have saved uh, the lives of the others, but the, the other. Endemic diseases in the state of health is uh, very, very poor in the country. And I couldn't agree more with what General Zemer just said about security. Uh, We work off of a, a security approach of engaging with the community, meeting with the leaders, meeting with the warlords. You know, if guys have guns, it's a pretty good idea if they're your friends. You don't want to be antagonistic to them. And by trying to gain community support and openly sharing what we're doing, We have always found, and this is like a basic principle of development and relief anywhere in the world, that you need to be accepted by the community. But there's a feeling in the Congo that people from the outside are injected in, in a way that is not effective. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next
4: week.
3: Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Max. And we are the hosts of Banter. Banter is the official policy podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. People like J.D. Vance, Charles Murray, Ajit Pai, Nikki Haley, and John Cornyn. Topics like trade wars, ISIS, ISIS, higher education, opioids, and much more. You can find Banter wherever podcasts are found. Click the link in the description below to subscribe now.